When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. This, if you're new to the podcast, is a podcast and it's all about words and language. The fun we can have with language, also what we can learn from language. I learn a lot every week from my companion, my friend, the person I describe, I think with justification, as the world's leading lexicographer, it's Susie Dent. No justification whatsoever, but it's a joy to be with you, particularly at the moment, Giles, because you remember during lockdown, I always said this was my oasis when we were kind of stuck inside and everything seemed very uncertain. And I think that's even more acute now. So um, thank you for being there today. It is a very grim world, isn't it? Yeah. And I was with a psychiatrist this week talking about Ukraine and the world and uh, explained to the psychiatrist that I've got living with me at home now, my children or some of them, and my grandchildren. Oh, okay. And who are watching all this or catching up on this. They don't watch television in the way we used to when we were young, but they have screens and on screens things pop up. Mm. And I was talking about the anxiety uh, that people are feeling and the sort of hopelessness and helplessness when you see the horrors unfolding uh, on from the news. What can we do? And she was very interesting. She said, well, lots of research has been done on this. And she said, essentially, what you need to do when you're feeling anxious is do what you can do. And then she said, turn down the sound. I said, what do you mean by that? She said, well, you know, there's not a lot you can do, but you can actually donate to help refugees. Although lots and lots of different websites and amazing humanitarian exactly. charities. Yeah. You can make your contribution and that's the practical thing you can do. Or if you have friends who come from Ukraine or that part of the world, you can do something practical. But once you've done the practical thing, she said, turn down the volume. Don't keep feeding yourself hmm. endlessly the bad news. Turn down the volume and do something else once you've done the practical thing. So in a sense, that's, I imagine, what you and I are doing. Well, I'm not sure I'm that good at it, really. So that's very good advice. I mean, I think right at the beginning, I would honestly find myself at 4am having to check the news to see what else was unfolding. And obviously, that's a recipe for disaster. But I think there's also the guilt of not looking, isn't there? I mean, her view was once a day is good enough to keep yourself abreast of what's going on. Mm. The other thing, as she said to me, it's uh, dec.org.uk. Oh, they're amazing. Demand, yeah. You know, that that's it. The Disasters Emergency Committee.org.uk. Do what you can there. Yeah, and obviously there will be lots of similar charities across the world because yeah. we have lots of listeners exactly. outside the UK. So, yes, from that point of view. So, uh, mm. how, how's your week been otherwise? I mean, my back has gone, incidentally. But you um, mentioned this. I saw you said it on Twitter. So, um, oh. what you need is one of those really hard foam rollers, which are agony, but I think also really helpful. Uh, and you, oh. you're doing your standing up working, aren't you? I'm not. I'm sitting at the moment, but okay. I may stand up later. Yeah. I'm standing up working. I also, I'm back on the low carb diet because I think it's the 10 pounds I put on as well that doesn't help. Right. I mean, to be honest, I have been distracting myself. I've been to the cinema 
You went to see Batman. How was that? The Batman. Uh, The Batman, I went to see The Batman because my daughter-in-law, who's actually living with us at the moment, is in The Batman. She plays, no spoilers, she plays the widow of the mayor of Gotham. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. So that was quite exciting. So we went to see that at the local cinema and lots of squeals of excitement whenever she appeared on the screen. <laughs> it's, I mean, I don't know. It's I'm dark, torn isn't it? about it. It's dark. It's, oh, it's, da- it's dark and it's full of violence. Oh. Uh, I mean, there are people who talk about the pornography of violence. And certainly for somebody like me who doesn't get to TV that's more exciting than Bargain Hunt. I mean, Holmes under the hammer is a bit rough for me because it involves a hammer. I was watching beaten. Escape to the Country the other day, literally because I just needed some escape. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, I, normally I would just go for drama. And I tried Peaky Blinders, which everybody, of course, says is absolutely brilliant. And I think it is totally brilliant. But again, too dark, too dark for me right now. So Escape to the Country was just what I needed. Well, if you want something light, can I recommend The Duke? Okay. Do you know about this film? I don't. It's got Helen Mirren uh, and Jim Broadbent. Amazing. And it's about the uh, burglary in the early 1960s, the robbery from the National Gallery of the painting of the Duke of Wellington. Oh, okay, brilliant. And a fellow came forward and said he'd done it because it was a part of a campaign to get free television licenses for older people. Mm-hmm. And he was a do-gooder and he thought he'd seen that the government had paid whatever it was, £160,000, the equivalent of millions in those days, for this painting. And he felt that was wrong and stole the painting from the National Gallery. And it's a most charming witty, intelligent, touching movie. I recommend that. And have you seen Belfast? I still haven't seen Belfast. I've got so many films to watch, which is lovely, actually, to know that I've got those up my sleeve. You must watch those. Mm. So let's try and intrigue people with a world of words now. Okay. What we thought we'd talk about this week, um, because funnily enough, I was with one of my grandchildren. I was walking down the street the other day and there was a a ladder. And I said, are you going to walk under the ladder? And they didn't understand what I meant. I said, but it's supposed to be bad luck to walk underneath a ladder. They'd never heard of that. Do you, do you avoid walking under a ladder if you see one in the street? No, I think I did used to. I went through a phase of being quite superstitious and knowing that I was probably being very irrational, but it's just that fear that if you skip it once and something awful would happen. So magpies were my absolutely big thing. I would never not salute a single magpie. But if it means otherwise stepping into the road, uh, yes, I will walk under a ladder. Fine. I mean, just to explain the ladder one, basically, I think the idea was walking on the ladder, there might have been somebody up it holding Mm. a pot of paint that might fall on top of you. But I think people also don't walk under signposts. And there's a good reason for that, I suppose, because there was, I I remember, I knew an actor who in one of the great storms of a few years ago, a poster blew off its hinges and crashed into his car. So, you know, there can be a risk of flying signposts. Well, as we will discover, there's a lot of symbolism behind these things as well. So it's not just Uh, the kind of practical consequences. But what I thought we could do is kick off with some of the most common superstitions. And I know that Lawrence, our producer, Heed and Harriet, um, they did a little bit of a straw poll in the something else offices and came up with the top hit list, if you like, of superstitions. So I'm going to ask you whether any of these apply to you. Okay, so you can give me, this is a quick fire question round you can say yes or no. So do you step on three drains in a row? Never heard of that one. Nor me. What about the magpie thing? Do you salute a single magpie? 
I don't, but my wife does. She says something like, good morning, Mr. Magpie. How's your wife and how's your family? Exactly. (laughs) My best wishes to your lady wife. I have no idea why she does that. No. Uh, What about opening an umbrella indoors? This is quite a common one. Uh, Now, yes, I don't do that. And I know it's supposed to be bad luck. I have no idea why. Okay, so you you won't open an umbrella? I don't open an umbrella indoors, nor even a parasol. Okay. What about this? I wasn't sure about this one, but again, this was on the, um, towards the top of the list in the something else offices. They won't cross someone on the stairs. I do that all the time. No, I never do that. No, I think I know that's supposed to be bad luck. So you'll go out of your way? Yes, absolutely. I wait at the bottom of the stairs till they've come down. How interesting. And this was a new one to me as well. I know about making a wish when blowing out a birthday candle, but what about when blowing away a shed eyelash? Good grief. <laughs> uh, well, I have absolutely no idea where some of these come from. I'll tell you oh, who fine. we need for all of these is Iona Opie, who we often uh, talk about in terms of playground language and folklore, etc. And uh, I think they also were heavily involved in the study of superstitions. But so should we dig a little deeper into if some you of can. these? I know nothing about most of these. Go on. Okay. Well, first of all, deep. I'll tell you where superstition itself comes from. It's from the Latin super, meaning over, and stare, meaning to stand. And so the idea was probably standing over something in amazement and awe. And by the time it arrived in English, this was about the beginning of the 15th century, it referred to an irrational religious belief that was based on fear or quite often based on a religious belief that was considered to be pagan and so profane from that point of view. And the more general use today, which is the kind of irrational or, you know, I would say unfounded, I suppose, but obviously superstitious people feel feel differently. That sense is first recorded in the 1790s. But yes, superstitio was to stand over. So that's where it comes from. So I'm going to start with knocking on wood. So touch wood is something we say quite often. Do you touch wood? Do you say, oh, yes, all's going well, touch wood? Yes. Yes. Yes, lots, lots all the time. Of, lots of different theories I, for that. And I tap my head usually. <laughs> yes. Uh, lots of different theories for that one. Uh, one is that trees, I mean, for centuries, quite rightly, have been regarded as sacred, you know, entities of nature. And if you touch a tree, you are being in touch with, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries of experience and beliefs and reverence, I suppose. So if you're touching wood, you are kind of spiritually connecting with something existential that is much bigger than ourselves. Something a little bit more everyday, I suppose, looks back to a 19th century children's game, certainly in Britain, called Tiggy Touchwood, um, where touching the nearest piece of wood gave you immunity. It was like your safe place. So you couldn't be tagged if you were touching the nearest piece of wood, which again, probably would be a tree. And in Italy, it's iron, apparently, but um, lots of different cultures have this idea of touching something in order to prevent bad luck. Well, this is not at all what I thought. I assumed, and I must have heard this when I was a child, that it was to do with the crucifix. And that it was a Christian symbol. And that you were touching, as it were, the wood of the cross. And that was, as it were, giving you a kind of blessing and saving you. That's quite possible. Touch touch wood. I think with all of these, and again, if you dipped into dictionaries of superstitions, you will find, I'm sure, so many theories. Because, of course, so many of these are part of an oral tradition and stories that are passed on from generation to generation and not written down. So there will be hundreds and hundreds of versions, I think, and variations and different suggestions. Now, we mentioned the walking under a ladder. 
Mm. you know, and, and the pragmatic reasons why you might not want to do that. But apparently there is one theory that if you lean a ladder against a wall, you're creating a bit of a triangle, aren't you, with the wall and the floor and that, or the ground. And that triangle is for some supposed to represent the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the trilogy. And by walking through that triangle, you're breaking that divine union. Could could that connect then with the three drains in a row? Is it possibly uh, the trio yes. thing? Actually, you'll find the trio in, in I think lots of different things and lots and lots of religious references, as you might expect. So we'll come to, you know, beliefs about Judas, for example, quite soon. What about breaking a mirror? That's because this is quite big in showbiz, isn't it? The superstition about breaking a mirror and then it will bring you seven years bad luck. Yeah, I didn't. I think it was as generally known. I mean, my view is that we should all break the mirror. It won't bring you seven years bad luck. It'll bring you seven years longer life because happy people live seven to ten years longer than unhappy people. And people who spend all their time looking in the mirror are in for a bad time. <laughs> and particularly this week on my birthday, I looked in the mirror. Oh, my God, I saw my father looking out at me. Oh, dear. Oh, good grief. You know, there's that ageing app. There's the ageing filter on things like Snapchat. You get get yes. your grandchildren to show you this. So uh, oh, one of the Snapchat filters is how you supposedly will look. This was quite a meme on social media, if you caught this, um, for a little while. And I absolutely look like my mum. I mean, it's astonishing. Oh. So what is the origin of seven years bad luck coming from breaking a mirror? Because I'm going to go around breaking them all. Well, some people believe it goes back to the ancient Romans and a piece of Roman folklore, I suppose, that every seven years life would renew itself and oh. any broken parts of your life would then be fixed. So if a mirror was smashed and your image was the final thing it reflected, you'd have to go through seven years of misfortune before good luck was then restored. But there were things, as always, there were kind of antidotes. So much like the magpie thing where you say, you know, good morning, Mr. Magpie, how's your wife, how's your family? There are measures that you can do to prevent this bad luck, apparently. So you can take the shattered pieces and bury them by the light of the moon. That's quite poetic, isn't it? Or one supposed remedy uh, suggests taking a fragment to a graveyard and placing it against a tombstone. Uh, yeah, so that's quite interesting. I mean, there are lots of other, I suppose, possibilities, like the mirror is a window to your soul. And, you know, if you go back to very ancient times, I mean, really ancient times, it was believed that if you glimpsed your reflection, you were actually seeing your soul staring back at you. So if you damaged a mirror, you would be essentially damaging your soul. They're all quite deep, aren't they? One of the ones I didn't ask you about is spilling salt. So if you spill some salt, do you throw it over your left shoulder? I do. I don't know why. It's ridiculous, <laughs> isn't it? Totally. It is. Well, I mentioned, you know, the Holy Trilogy earlier and, and all the religious associations, but throwing salt over your shoulder is supposed to deter the devil. So apparently... And I, I need to check this out. But Judas is depicted in The Last Supper, one of the very famous paintings of The Last Supper. Judas is depicted as having spilt the salt cellar. Does this ring any bells oh, to you? I need no. to check this out. So in other words, salt is evil by association with Judas Iscariot. Mm. And then more generally by throwing the salt over your shoulder. I don't know what has to be the left one because that's normally considered unlucky. You're supposed to blind the devil behind you. Again, and, very, very And dark. Judas is the 12th disciple for those who are not, as it were, familiar with the Christian story. And he is the one who betrays Christ. So at the Last Supper, there are 13 people at the table. Yeah. And, and Judas is, as it were, the 13th person at the table. And that's why it's unlucky to have 13 people at the table, yes? Yes, and I think possibly why the number 13 
perhaps is considered to be unlucky. And of course, I think we've mentioned before that a fear of Friday the 13th or the number 13 is triskaidekaphobia. Are you triskaidekaphobic? Every time Friday the 13th comes along, it kind of takes me by surprise. And I think I give it a momentary thought and then forget about it. How about you? I'm quite relaxed about the 13th because I'm a Piscean, uh, born on the 8th of March. Mm -hmm. My wife was born on the 14th of March, uh, same day as uh, Michael Caine. Not many people know that. And my son was born on the 13th of March. So the 13th is always considered a good day in our household. But Friday the 13th, I imagine, again, Friday is because of Good Friday. Again, going back to the Christian story, the day on which Christ was crucified. Oh, okay. That's so that I think is the, that's how you bring the two together, which takes me, I think, definitely to the one I know, which is keeping your fingers crossed, mm. which I think is creating a cross out of your fingers. Again, a, a Christian reference. Am I right? Yes, probably. And kids still do this today. If you make a pinky promise, for example, as a child might say, you link your little fingers together. So perhaps the idea is that you are in union and joining up with somebody as a kind of blessing or, you know, way of ensuring safety or good luck, etc. So that kind of symbolism is still there today, even in kids' games. And in fact, I think you will find a lot of superstitions are remembered in, in kids' games. I've never heard of a pinky promise. Tell me what pinky is your little finger or one of what finger is your pinky? Yeah, your pinky is your little finger. And why is it called a pinky? It's called, I think, because if you think about pinking shears, which are shears used in the garden to prune plants and things, the idea is of cutting short. And because your pinky is from the Dutch pink, I think meaning short, your pinky is the shortest finger of the lot. So I think it's related to, as I say, pinking in the garden rather than the colour pink. And I think you use pinking shears too for dressmaking. I do. I think so. What do I I know? Interesting. I mean, I've not done either dressmaking or much gardening. (laughs) Or making pinky promises. So, yeah. So, if my daughter, for example, wants to absolutely promise me something and and make sure that I, you know, we we used to say I swear on my life, I suppose, or something like that. But now they say pinky promise and you you wrap your little fingers together. And then unless they're crossing their, their other fingers behind their back, it's all very complicated. In a moment, I'm going to ask you about, I'm going to say to you, Penny for your thoughts, Susie, Mm. but I'm going to do that after the break. Should we take a quick break? Yes. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Penny for your thoughts, Susie Dent. Penny yes. for your thoughts. What What is the meaning of that? I don't know. I think it's just, why, why a penny? I mean, we know about spending a penny, don't we? Which actually goes back to the physical sort of slot mechanism, coin mechanisms that were needed to go to the loo. But it dates back to 15 15- 35. And Thomas More, who says, as it often happens in such 
wise and not without some note and reproach of such vagrant mind, other folks suddenly say to them, a penny for your thought. It goes back a very long way. And it's obviously it's an invitation to a person lost in thought to share their whatever Mm. is preoccupying them at the time. But why a penny? I suppose it's just, you know, I will I will pay you something if you tell me what's worrying you sort of thing. And uh, it's unbelievable that goes back to Thomas More, isn't it? Amazing. Yeah. See a penny, pick it up. And all day you'll have good luck. I do do that. If I see a coin, I will put it in my pocket. Again, why a penny should be particularly associated with good luck, I'm not sure. But if the purple people know, we would absolutely love to hear all the, you know, the superstitions attached to coins. Uh, Not just coins. I want to know why you're not allowed to open an umbrella indoors. Seems to me to be ridiculous. But purple people all over the world may know about that, in which case get in touch with us. Purple at something else.com. And also, I want to know about blowing away that shed eyelash. I mean, where does all that, does that, that come from? Is really interesting. And there is apparently, going back to the umbrella, you know, there are always ridiculous national days of this and national days of that. I don't know if this one is ridiculous at all. Some, sometimes they seem very flimsy indeed. But there is a national open and umbrella indoors day, which is March the 13th. And uh, I suppose intended to be an, an experiment to see if you do do that, what happens and whether superstitions are uh, are really true or not. And there is some suggestion with the umbrella that ancient Egyptians thought it would offend the gods to open an umbrella. And if you remember, an umbrella has at its heart umbra, meaning shade, because they were parasols. They were essentially to protect you from the shade rather than the sun, rather rather than the rain. So the offence to the gods would be if you opened an umbrella when there was already shade. But, you know, how that has persisted for absolutely centuries, I'm not sure. But clearly it still makes people uncomfortable. And it's March the 13th. Apparently. So we've just missed it. I missed the opportunity. And that's called International Open an Umbrella Indoors Day. It's national. So I think this is probably national in the US, but why not? It's it's an experiment to see what happens, I suppose. Why not? Why and not? Of course, the 14th of March, as I mentioned, my wife's birthday, also the birthday of Michael Caine, is the birthday of Albert Einstein. Uh-huh. And one of my favourite short poems was written by Tom Stoppard, and it's called The 14th of March, and it celebrates Albert Einstein's birth. And it goes like this, 14th of March, Einstein born, quite unprepared for E to equal MC squared. <laughs> That's neat, isn't it? It's clever. Very, very I like indeed. those. Well, look, if people have got queries or in fact they've got answers about yes, superstitions, please. please let us know, purple at somethingelse.com. Have people been in touch with us? They certainly have. But before we get to the wonderful emails that we get sent, just to remind people, we absolutely love getting your emails. We do read all of them, even if we can't obviously respond to every single one. But do remember, if if you would like to, you can get all episodes ad-free and access our bonus episodes too when you sign up to our premium offering, which is on Apple subscriptions. This doesn't affect the normal podcast. So Please don't worry if you can't do this because we will continue with our regular podcast. This is just extra content if you would like it for a small monthly fee. And if you want to hear us chatting about Wordle, about the shipping forecast or a new mini series on the nation's favourite swear words. And let's face it, a lot of us probably do feel like swearing through stress and anxiety at the moment. Then please follow the link in the programme description. And thank you for your support. And thank you no matter what you decide, because it is fantastic to have you with us. But yes, Giles, we have got some fantastic correspondence in and the first one comes from Matt Starr. Hi Susie and Giles. 
I teach English to refugees, so I'm fascinated by where our language stems from. I've recently come across your podcast and really enjoy it. I have one question. The word condone. In my head, it sounds negative, but yet we use it with a negative auxiliary when we mean positive. Why is this and where does it come from? Thank you, Matt Starr. Well, that's intriguing, isn't it? Well done him, first of all, teaching English to refugees. Agreed. And the word condone. Explain to me what he's trying to say to us. I think what Matt means is that you would say, I can't condone that behaviour ah, yes. or we cannot condone. So yeah. it's almost sort of used with a negative in front of it, although Matt is saying actually intrinsically sounds negative itself. So why do we need a negative in front of it? And it's a really interesting one and just shows the kind of, you know, the complexity of, of the language, I suppose. I think possibly it sounds negative because in our minds, perhaps we're linking it with condemn and similar words. And so we will say, for example, we cannot condone that behaviour, as I say. And I think when we use it without a negative in front of it, it means to approve something or to sanction something, but it is usually when you're doing that with reluctance. In other words, the school had no choice but to condone this new measure, for example. But it's always kind of slightly reluctant. So I think it is intrinsically quite a negative word. It goes back to the mid-19th century and a Latin word, condonare, which means to refrain from punishing. In other words, that punishment is there and you are stopping yourself from punishing someone, but it's, it kind of implies that the justification for that punishment is still there. So that condonare is from con meaning altogether and donare meaning to give, which of course gave us donation and etc. Uh, so yes, to stop yourself from punishing someone, even though perhaps that punishment was justified. Well, thank you very much for that, Matt Starr. And as I say, well done your work with refugees. Explore yeah. the word refugee for a moment. Obviously, mm. it comes it comes from refuge. Seeking people who are refugees are seeking refuge. Refuge is that Latin in origin? Is I've got some vague yes. memory that fugere means fleeing. I mean, to flee tell, yeah, exactly. Does, yeah, exactly right. And I think a lot of people, particularly those who are perhaps against immigration, etc., confuse refugee with immigrants or migrant workers, etc. And there are distinctions between the three. And that's not to say any of these people are, you know, no less human beings. But yes, originally a refugee was a Protestant who fled France to seek refuge from religious persecution. So that's how it emerged in the 17th century. And as you say, fugere is to flee. But now it is very specifically someone who's been forced to leave their country to escape war or persecution or a natural disaster. So it is somebody who is seeking and deserves refuge. And Star is the surname of Matt. And this is what you call nominative, nominative determinism? Yes, that's that right. Where somebody's name actually touches on what they do. Yeah, Matt we did Star. lots of those. Do you remember? It was quite I a do. fun thing. When times were freer, we um, we did lots and lots of examples of nominative determinism. And if anybody wants to send in their latest ones, that would be fantastic. I will have a latest one to tell you about when I next see you, because I'm having lunch shortly with uh, Sir Roy Strong. Do you know who I mean oh, by Sir Roy yes, Strong? yes, I do. He's now in his mid-80s. He's a brilliant man. And when he was very young, he became the youngest director of the National Portrait Gallery and he went on to be the director of the National Gallery. He's a, an art historian. But his whole life, I think, is because he's called Roy Strong. Roy is a version of King, isn't it? 
Yeah, um, Roy. And mm-hmm. uh, Roy, of course. Roy. Mm-hmm. Strong, well, there you are. So it's great to, to be called Matt Starr, Roy Strong. These are the names that we want. Susie Dent, oh, dearie me. What's that about? Never mind. Yes, I know. Uh, but we've got another interesting name now, somebody who is marshalling the language for us. It's Tom Marshall. Hi there. Thanks for helping educate us all. I've just got a few questions here. There are loads of words I believe that we can learn by assumption, having never been given an actual definition. So I'd like to know if there's a word for that process. I do it a lot. A word that I've never been given a reason to understand is fray, as in into the fray, as opposed to to fray the rope or wire. So as you see, I know what context to use it in, but where does the fray come from? Well, that's very intriguing. That's Tom Marshall. Can you marshal an answer for Tom? Uh, Yes, I can certainly try. So first of all, Tom asks, is there a name for words that we learn having never actually officially formally learned an actual definition? And I suppose that would be immersion because it's your native tongue. And so a lot of the time we are simply absorbing words that are all around us or assimilation. Either of those two would explain how we absorb the vocabulary around us, even if it is not part of our formal education. So fray. So fray has two distinct words. So the verb meaning to unravel, as in a frayed rope, that actually goes back to the Latin fricare. So it looks slightly different, which means to rub. And you'll find that in friction, for example. So I suppose the idea is that something is rubbing or wearing away. And then the second meaning is a person eager to fight and they might plunge into the fray. And that actually is a shortening of affray, which we still use as well. And that goes back to the French uh, affrayer, which means to disturb or startle. And it is so funny how words kind of change appearance over time, because if you are frazzled with exhaustion, that is probably linked to the first meaning of fray, meaning to unravel. In other words, if you're frazzled, you are you know, literally coming apart. Very good. Well, not Very literally. good. I've just used literally metaphorically, which will annoy a lot of the purple people. I do apologise. Brilliant purple people. If you're annoyed, uh, write in to tell. Well, actually, we don't want to hear if you're annoyed. But, <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> do keep in touch. That's the point. You know our email address. It's purple at somethingelse.com and there's no G in something else. Questions, corrections, ideas for topics for future episodes and the truth about your favourite superstitions or your least favourite, all are welcome. And very welcome every week are the trio of words that you give us. Unusual words, Susie, that perhaps we should be more familiar with. What have you got this week? Yes, well, because we're talking about superstitions, I thought I'd give you three words. They all come from a book that I have praised to the skies before, and it is absolutely beautiful. It's by Robert McFarlane, if you know him, and he's written something called Landmarks, as well as some the, the Lost Words, which has been a huge success in the UK, certainly, and every school was given a copy. So I have to thank his book for these three. And I'm going to start with, now this is something that I had when I was growing up. I was very, very lucky to have a tiny, tiny little area in our garden that my um, parents just let it do its do its thing. We call it rewilding, I suppose, these days. So lots of trees and plants and things, you know, just 
just grew naturally without being tethered at all. And my dad, with his lawnmower, cut this little beautiful fairy ring inside it. And for ages, it was the secret magical path that I really believed mm. was a fairy ring. And so Robert, in his book, has included the word galleytrop. Now, I'm not sure where this comes from at all, but a galleytrop is a fairy ring in the local dialect of Devon and Gloucestershire and Somerset. A galley trop. Fairy ring's quite mm. quite magical. The next one is summer geese. Summer geese. Now, this is steam that rises from the moors when rain is followed by hot sunshine. So that's something sort of otherworldly about it. Summer geese, steam that rises from the moors when rain is followed by sunshine, which is beautiful. And the third one, again, quite beautiful, I think. Haze fire. And haze fire is the luminous morning mist that the dawn sunshine breaks through the haze fire, which again, quite mm. beautiful, I think. Wonderful. So there's my tree. Extraordinary. How about a poem? Do you have a poem for us today? Well, I was torn and I, I was looking through war poetry, inevitably, mm. and I came across this poem, Everyone Sang by Siegfried Sassoon. It's a, a, a poem from the Great War, as it was so-called at the time, the war to end all wars back more than 100 years ago. It's a famous poem, and a short one. And it's about a moment in war. A moment of, well, this is the moment. The moment everyone sang. Everyone suddenly burst out singing, and I was filled with such delight, as prisoned birds must find in freedom, winging wildly across the white, orchards and dark green fields, on, on, and out of sight. Everyone's voice was suddenly lifted, and beauty came like the setting sun. My heart was shaken with tears, and horror drifted away. Oh, but everyone was a bird, and the song was wordless. The singing will never be done. And it's a poem about hope and heartache at a time of war. Not sure that I completely understand it, but it certainly touches one, doesn't it? Oh, it's just beautiful. And it reminds me of the the pictures and the videos that we've been seeing, certainly on social media, of, you know, even in the midst of carnage, really, musicians playing in the streets of Kiev and, you know, in other cities in Ukraine, just bringing the music back just for a little while. Absolutely astonishing. I love that, Giles. Thank you. And I hope that you have loved it too and that you've enjoyed the show. Please do keep following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And please do recommend us to friends if you have enjoyed it. And most importantly, get in touch via, as Giles said, purple at something else.com. And if you would like to, please subscribe to join the Purple Plus Club too. It's quite fun in there. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production <laughs> produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale and... Oh, who is he? Is he here? Is he there? It's Gully.